Hey there, nature lovers. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. Just as a reminder, to coincide with our release of Wild Chicago a few weeks ago, we released a piping plover-themed merch design. We're partnering with Bob Dolgan, a filmmaker of the Monty and Rose films, to donate the money and provide closed captioning for his new film coming out on September 4th and 6th. So make sure you, if you buy that merch, that money will be donated to that cause. So go check that out on our website, thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. With that all being said, let's get into it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast, where we talk everything conservation, education, fascination. My name is CJ, and I'm joined by my co-host. That'd be me, Matt. Well, before we jump into our wellness check this week and kind of check in how we've been doing, there's some exciting news. We have a new co-host starting next week. So uh, no spoilers as to who it is just yet. We'll be teasing them on our social medias if you want to get to know them. But we're really excited to have a new co-host. Um, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, John is no longer a part of the Birdie Bunch podcast. Uh, you know, we wish him the best, of course, but we are going to have a new co-host starting next week. So get excited for that. We will be introducing them on our at the Birdie Bunch podcast. With that all out of the way, Matt, how are you doing this week? Ain't too bad. You know, had some weird. Uh, I got home from hanging out one night and pulled in my driveway. And I thought I saw a fox in the front yard. I was like, whoa, cool. So I went and to go follow it. And I went around the corner. I was like, I want to see this fox. This is sick. It was a coyote. And I was like, ooh, maybe, you know, let me let me just step off. You have your thing, buddy. I'll, I'll have mine. But I was like, it's one of those respecting nature things. It's like even us conservationists can be proven wrong. I was like, oh, my God, it's going to be a red fox. This is so great. And then it, it, it was not fun fact. It was not at all. So that was almost frightening. Uh, how about you? How you been? I have been OK. Um Tomorrow is actually my birthday, Tuesday, August 10th, which is very exciting. So obviously spent some time with my family for my birthday. And then this past weekend, I got a chance to go to the opening of the Douglas 18, which we mentioned a few weeks ago during a current event. So the Douglas 18 uh, is a new uh, golf course, mini golf course, which is like bird themed and local conservation themed in Douglas Park here in Chicago, which is really exciting. So I got a chance to go to their opening on August 7th, which was awesome. Yeah, that's really sick. I kind of wish I could have been there. Got a lot going on. But I mean, it's such yeah, an incredible. Yeah, you're a busy project. boy. You're a busy I'm, boy. Unfortunately, I always am. And that's always fun. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's really a cool concept, a really amazing project, too. And I think that's such a lovely thing. Yeah, it's it's really, really dope. Once you come back home, we'll, we'll take a pretty bunch field trip there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's jump into our first segment for today, which is, of course, our creature feature. So our creature feature for this week is an animal that I see all too often here in Chicago. Um, Matt, do you have any non-spoilery teasers for our creature feature this week? I can't think of any puns. I'm really struggling with this one. It's been a, it's been a, been a, been a, been a long. Uh, it's it's been a minute since I pulled that one out on you. I apologize. Yeah, I'm like, ooh, out of touch, out of practice. Yeah, out of, out of left field, frankly. 
thought of a lot of things, but if I had to say, I would say, I don't know what the creature feature is because it's not in the document. But you don't know what it is. No. Oh, it's a rock pigeon. I told you it was going to be a rock pigeon. Oh, you did say that yesterday. <laughs> Oops. I, yeah. You have any puns um, now? Uh, not really any puns, just like I like this animal because... I think it makes me a horrible person. I know a lot of people, you know, this is a very detestable species. Yeah. Also known as the rats of the sky. <laughs> yeah. I've always hated birds. Never once liked birds. You know, I was going to say, you're not, a, you're not, the, you're not the resident bird expert. You're not, no, you're not our bird guy. No, either. That's no, not you. That could no. never be you. I don't know who it is, but it ain't me. <laughs> well, our creature feature for this week, like I said, if you haven't guessed it already, is the rock pigeon. So the rock pigeon uh, is a really interesting bird. It's more common, uh, commonly known as the city pigeon. It's been domesticated and taken around the world all over the place. It's been raised for food, trained for homing and racing and carrying messages, used in research. So it's done a lot of things in its long career uh, of being a bird. But pigeons are one of the you know most populous species in a lot of cities. But they really haven't proven to have much of a negative impact on native bird species, which is really exciting. Um, they're a favorite prey of peregrine falcons, um, supporting peregrine populations that stay around cities. So that kind of like supports local conservation, if anything, which is wild. They're traditionally from Europe and North Africa and India, but they pretty much now live all over the world uh, in wild or semi-wild condition in cities, um, including most of North America. So if you've been to a city, in, like a big city in North America, you've probably seen some rock pigeons. In these places, they've kind of reverted to um, their kind of natural coloring as opposed to all of the plumage they were bred to have in captivity. As I mentioned pretty briefly earlier on, pigeons have a, had a wide variety of jobs. Pigeons initially were kind of always interested in living in city areas around people. There were rock pigeons in the fertile fields of Mesopotamia pecking at seeds, and they were encouraged to roost in nest houses in cities on farms. And their squabs, which are fat, nearly grown nestlings, provided a rich source of protein in a land where wild game was scarce. Soon after domestication, pigeons became far more popular than just sources of meat. So pigeons escaped in these cities that they were kind of raised in and kind of made these big populations that we kind of see still today. But the ones who stayed in captivity still prove their usefulness. In wartime, messenger pigeons have been used successfully for thousands of years, from the battles of Greek city-states through World War I and World War II, which is really, really amazing. They were bred for all of their different colorations, uh, which was, you know, kind of picked up by a lot of kind of notable people from Queen Victoria to Pablo Picasso, even Mike Tyson. So pigeons have a pretty big place in history and they definitely get the job done. Matt, any thoughts on rock pigeons? I like rock pigeons. Um, I've never been a hater of those boys. And I think the ecology of the pigeon is actually kind of fascinating, which is why it lends itself to cityscapes like those those skyscrapers just emulate cliffs from their native range and i think that's kind of kind of crazy how like when they got released they like you said they reverted back to the natural state after so many years of domestication it's a wildly surprising kind of little event in natural history and I, I think it's very very cool i mean i just think they're cool birds they're they're fun 
They definitely are fun. Uh, you know what else is fun, Matt? Current events. Let's jump into our next segment. Current events. Nature in the news. In the news. So there's been a pretty recent string of Chicago-based current events, and I ain't breaking it today. Just today of recording, this is August 5th, there was an event releasing the unveiling of the new three acres added to the Montrose Beach Nature Preserve. Now, if you're wondering what Montrose Beach is, you should probably listen to like our last at this point three episodes. And we kind of break down Montrose and reference Montrose in many, many different formats. Um, but what's kind of important to know, and I'll rehash again, is that Montrose is a really important migratory bird and nesting bird area on the shorelines of Lake Michigan in kind of northern Chicago. And this area is widely renowned for being the nesting grounds of Monty and Rose, the two really, really uber famous piping plovers. And in April, there was a commission that was finally accepted. It's been apparently an attempted commission for years I've been hearing. Finally accepted to increase the nine acres of state nature preserve land to 12 adding 3.1 acres it was accepted in april and it's officially gone through you know they can finally do some work with it because monty and rose are going to be on their way back at this point rose is actually already left she's back you know going back to florida and monty is staying with the fledglings who will be on their way soon but it's just a really encouraging thing to see you know, at it again, how much Chicago has rallied behind these birds. And I think that's what's such an incredible thing is just that rallying cry of this is important. Nature is important. How do we preserve what's important to our city? And by prioritizing this kind of stuff, we're making huge, huge strides in piping bloater conservation. And I think it's a wonderful thing. It's an amazing amazing event that's just happened i'm very very happy about it and um, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about it there's a blog this week in birding by bob dolgan he posts about it on instagram too it was also on the news on abc7 on cbs on all the news outlets that i listen to when i come home so there's really no shortage of news about it but it's just another another great step in the monty and rose saga and shows just how much two birds can change of the whole entire world I'm really happy to hear that we, you know, to hear that that's going on with Montrose. Obviously, I live pretty close to Montrose, and I'm moving even closer, which is really awesome. So I'm really, really excited about all of this conservation happening there. And, you know, I love those plovers, so that's very exciting. For my current event this week, it's from The Guardian, and it's titled, Giant Bird-Eating Centipedes Exist, and They're Surprisingly Important for Australia's Ecosystem. So... Giant bird-eating centipedes might sound something out of a science fiction film, but they're actually not. On a tiny island called Phillip Island, which I've actually been to, which is a part of the South Pacific's Norfolk Island group, the Phillip Island centipede population can kill and eat up to 3,700 seabird chicks each year, mainly the black-winged petrel. And this is entirely natural. This unique creature endemic to Phillip Island has a diet consisting of an unusually large proportion of vertebrate animals, including those seabird chicks, like I mentioned. As large marine predators, seabirds usually sit at the top of the food chain. 
but there's a new study that was published in American Naturalist that demonstrates this isn't always the case. It shows how large predatory arthropods can play an important role in the food webs of island ecosystems, and the Phillip Island centipede achieves this through its widely varied diet. This centipede can grow almost to a foot in length, and it's armored with a potent venom encased in two pincer-like appendages called forcipules, which it uses to immobilize its prey. On warm and humid nights, these strictly nocturnal arthropods hunt through thick leaf litter, navigating a labyrinth of seabird burrows peppered across the forest floor. The centipede hunts an unexpectedly varied range of quarry, from crickets to seabird chicks, geckos, and skinks. It even hunts fish dropped by seabirds called black knotties that make their nest in the trees above. So scientists kind of were observing this, and they just thought this was wild, so they went in to study it. And from the rates of predation that they observed, they calculated that the Phillip Island centipede population can kill between 2,100 and 3,700 petrel chicks each year. The black-winged petrel, which there are up to 19,000 breeding pairs on the island, appear to be resilient to this level of predation, which is kind of wild. And to kind of wrap it all up, as a driver of nutrient transfer, the persistence of the Phillip Island centipede and its healthy appetite might just be a key to the island's ecosystem recovery. But more research is definitely going to be done to kind of understand that a little bit better, which is really, really interesting. Anytime you getting rid of birds, I'm going to be a little unhappy, but it's also such a cool, a cool thing to have as far as an ecosystem goes. So I'll, I'll allow it because I like bugs. But other than that, I'm not happy about it. Well, that wraps up current events this week. It's now time to jump into our main topic for this episode. We are here now with Elliot High, our writing and production assistant. And I'm really excited to have you on the podcast, Elliot. This is your first uh, official on air. You were, of course, on for our episode at the conference, at the Teen Conservation Leadership Conference, a few episodes back. But we're happy to have you here. Why don't you introduce yourself for our listeners? Yeah, my name is Elliot. I am currently a student at Otterbine University, and I guess my expertise for this episode, we're talking animals with jobs, and I raised service dogs in the past. I also work with education birds at my current job at a wildlife center. That's really fabulous, Elliot. Thanks for kind of sharing <laughs> that with us. Why don't you kind of give us a background on kind of what some different jobs animals are, maybe your history with uh, service animals, like you said. Yeah, so as far as service animals go, I kind of got a dream in my head when I was in like second grade. I read this book about how people could train puppies to be guide dogs. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard of. And I was like, mom, we're gonna get a puppy. And she was like, no, we're not. And I bothered her about it for like three years. And then we finally got a little black lab puppy and they give you the puppy and it's bred through a long line of service dogs to be this perfect little puppy. And I had him for a year and you train them all the basic obedience and then they go to like a formal training where they get the specific guide dog training. And he actually end up, ended up being placed in Spain with a blind guy who lives there. And then we did a second dog and he was not successful, but the process was the same. And he just walked too fast. So he was not able to continue into being a service dog and now he's just a household pet. But through that, I got to interact with a lot of different service dog trainers and build a community of 
people with service dogs and the people who raise them and the breeders and all sorts of things. And that was just super cool. And then of course, now I'm working with education birds and in a way that's sort of their job. They go out into the public and their job is to be represent like representatives of their species. So the one that sometimes I get to work with, he's an American kestrel. His name is Mouse. <laughs> I know, I know. It's kind of weird to name him after what he eats. <laughs> it's like naming me Popeyes. <laughs> I'm, I mean, my funny. Instagram is Taco Bellyet. So, oh, I am, you know, me and Mouse share that. We should, yeah. That's very good. <laughs> so, um, Elliot, we talked a little bit about service dogs. I know that there is another dog in your life right now. Can you tell us about the difference between a service dog and an emotional support animal? Yeah, so I have my own dog, and he is an emotional support animal. So the biggest difference comes legally. So a service dog is trained to perform specific tasks. So when we raised leader dogs, they were trained to lead someone. So they would follow directions, get a person from point A to point B, keep them safe in traffic, those sorts of things, and have very specific trained tasks. Whereas an ESA, like Boomi, doesn't have trained tasks necessarily. So they're a great source of comfort and a great source of happiness, but they don't perform specific tasks, if that makes sense. So, and then ESAs yeah, don't have as many legal rights. So, whereas a service dog, you can't legally deny them from a business. ESAs are not allowed in public. They're not much different than your average pet. They're allowed in like apartment buildings a lot of the times, but other than that, they don't get any special rights. That's a that's a great descriptor. Mm -hmm. Matt, do you have any questions for our, our good friend Elliot? No, no, you know, actually a couple just about, especially because I actually have experience with training service dogs as well. Wow. Uh, I, I do. <laughs> I, I did know that. do. Um, what can you talk a little bit, Elliot? I know there's admittedly, especially as we get to college, right? A lot of people like having dogs around. There's a lot of people who can attest to that too. I'm sure, you know, I'm a big fan of having a dog around a couple of people that I knew I was well acquainted with at school also really enjoyed having dogs around. Can you talk about what the experience of being a trainer is like? Um, especially with like the experience of like, you know, having to say goodbye sometimes and stuff like that. I know people a lot of times get rose tinted glasses about this process. And like, it, it, it's it's an emotional toll. I'm not going to lie. It's hard. I was wondering if you could talk about your experience with that at all. Yeah, it's definitely hard because you get the puppy when they're like eight to 10 weeks old. So they're like fresh little puppy. It's all exciting. And you get to watch them grow up and learn how to be like this great animal. But I think there's always like the thought in the back of your head that you know this is not your dog. Especially with our first, the first one we raised, he was a really good dog. So we knew we were not getting him back. So I think that helps is, it's a very different mindset than when you adopt a dog. Cause you know, it's not yours. And as someone who's in conservation and also cares a lot about like helping the disabled community, you know that that dog has a greater purpose so that always helped a lot, but it definitely still sucked. <laughs> like, 
You've had this dog for a year. You love it, obviously. And then you just go drop it off somewhere. And the process, like, the drop-off process is very informal. When we did it, you walk in, you go into this, like, tiny little room, and they're like, say goodbye. <laughs> and then they just take the dog, and you're like, where is it going? And they're like, kennels? <laughs> you just don't really know. And I don't know if that's different if you're doing it with, like, I know you can do training through colleges, so I don't know how it works at that level, because I did it at home. But it's a very strange experience. Just, but I think it helps to know, like, this dog has a greater purpose. It's going to have a job. It's off to do bigger and better things. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I can definitely speak to it as college because that was where, you know, I was doing it. There's a lot of college campuses, especially in Ohio. Ohio has a ton of dog service animal and training programs. Like, I know there's four, at least in the greater Cincinnati area. So, like, there's a lot. And one thing that I always noticed is that it's really hard, especially when as a college student, you're not splitting time, right? Like when that dog lives with you, it lives with you. It is your dog. A lot of these programs, other people aren't allowed to handle them because there's also the thing of training. Like you have to have a consistent body training them and like they'll drop them off if, you know, they have a test or something like that. And like someone will watch the dog. But for the most part, that's like your dog. And it was definitely a fun thing to kind of navigate, you know, some people really understanding that this is for not for my personal pleasure of having a dog around and having like a free dog to have around and more so like we're paying it forward doing something and also watching the people navigate, you know, trying to understand how that process works. And it's a really tough thing to rectify as an animal lover, but like you get the sense of like you're doing some good when you see those people pick up their dog for the first time. It's such an exciting moment. And so it's like, a, it's a rewarding thing. I don't know. I always really was enjoying the, the work that we did. It's something really special. Yeah, obviously there's a lot of emotions around all of that, but I think kind of like both of you mentioned, at the end of the day, it's really a positive thing to see those dogs doing their jobs and helping people. That's really what it's about. So the way that, so you drop them off at when they're just over a year, and then they go through three months of intense training. And then you're invited back at the end for their little graduation ceremony. They give them a little cabin gown and everything. It's very cute. <laughs> um, but we got to meet his new handler. And just getting to hear the guy talk about, like, he was an older, I think he was in his 40s. He had two kids. And just hearing him talk about the independence that he's going to gain. And he was like, for the first time, I'm going to be able to go out of my house by myself. Like, I don't have to rely on my children to guide me. And knowing that, like, we get, we raised a dog for a year and we're making that big of an impact on someone's life was just super rewarding. Yeah, I mean, I think that experience is something that, like, obviously, if you haven't lived that, you can't really, like, relate that experience to anything, you know? Um, we just passed uh, Disability Awareness Month. That was July. So I'm kind of bummed that we didn't get this episode in sooner. But I think the content is always relevant, right? Um, something that we at the Birdie Bunch strive to do is inclusion. Elliot was a really key part of that in joining our team. He actually, uh, you know what? I'll just let you talk about it, Elliot. Yeah, so inclusivity and accessibility is something I've always been super passionate about. So I joined the team, and one of the things I was thinking about was transcripts. And 
how do we get this to be accessible to different people? Because whether it's a hearing issue or just a, I can't sit down for 45 minutes and listen to something and like process the information, which is something like I personally struggle with. I can't just sit down and listen to 45 minutes of something and actually process it. So how do we take what we're doing and make that accessible? So I've started making up transcripts for every episode we release so that if you want to sit down and read through it like an article instead of listening to it, there's that possibility. And I think that just opens the doors to a lot of people. Yeah, and making sure we're doing image descriptions and captioning videos and just making things as accessible as possible. Yeah, uh, I think you, you being a part of our team, us kind of partnering in a soft sense, being friends with more really uh, with the people at Birdability. Um, you know, we've we've definitely become more aware in uh, our ways to be more inclusive and accessible. What are some ways that um, the world can just be accessible to you know service animals? Can you talk a little bit to that? Yeah, I think a big one is do not fake having a service animal. That's always the first thing I tell people. Like, I have an ESA. He's a big part of my life. He's super helpful to me. I do not take him in public. Do not take your animals in public that are not service animals because all you're doing is making it harder for people who actually have service animals. We were turned away from places when we had service dogs in training because they had had such bad experiences with fake service animals. Outside of that, just ignore service animals in public is another big one. They're working. You don't go to their many. job. <laughs> They're doing their job. You don't go up to random people who are working. I, at least I hope you don't. <laughs> and are like, you're so cute. You're doing so good. Yeah, that, that would be harassment. <laughs> <laughs> that, would be, that would be harassment. Don't harass the animals. Just treat service animals with the respect they deserve. And know that they're doing a job, even if they look very cute doing it. <laughs> yeah, that's fabulous. Thank you so much. Obviously, we still have a little bit of time before we can wrap up this interview, this conversation, really. Um, Matt, did you have any other questions for Elliot before I bring something new to the conversation? Okay, I was just wondering, um, you mentioned another animal with jobs, and that's ambassador animals. I don't know if we use the direct term, but that's usually what we talk about as them. I have experience with ambassador animals, but I don't want to talk about it because you're a guest. And I was wondering what, you know, your experience with working with ambassador animals behind the scenes is. Because, like, usually when we see them, we get them as, like, the we get their little show, the kit and caboodle, the, the program, you know? But, like, there's a lot that goes in behind that. And I was wondering if you could attest to what the work behind, like, keeping an ambassador animal an ambassador looks like. Yeah. So, some of the things, Mouse is the guy that they let a lot of the interns work with. Because he's a smaller bird. He's not as dangerous as, like, Freddy, our bald eagle. Or we have a bald eagle and a red-tailed hawk who are also ambassador animals. And a turkey vulture. And those three are very large birds. And but we work a lot with mouse. So whenever you go in to feed him, you have to get him to perch on your hand before he can eat. He's not allowed to have that mouse until he goes to his little platform and then he comes to your hand. And things like that just make keeping up with training on a daily basis because we're not open to the public much, the birds aren't going out much. So it's a lot more behind the scenes. 
and then just general welfare that you would do with any animal. He's an ambassador bird, but he still has to get his poop cleaned up every day and get fed and <laughs> all the menial tasks that come with keeping any animal. I know they do a lot of training in the winter with the ed birds. Because uh, it's hard. I'm in a wildlife center, so summer is baby season. We're swamped with babies. But in the winter, it's like, let's pull out Buzz, the turkey vulture, and just teach him tricks for a couple hours, because why not? So yeah, so it's just constant training behind the scenes and making sure they're happy. And yeah. Yeah, when we talked last week with Gabe Kaysen, uh, he he told us a lot about welfare, a lot about animal training and husbandry. And keeping those animals engaged, and obviously he kind of used similar language to you, and like training is how we communicate with animals, right? And we communicate with them, one, to make our job easier, and two, to help better their lives. And that, of course, goes for ambassador animals working their jobs and educating people. So that's fabulous. Good question, Matt. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring a new piece to this conversation, if that's okay. I just, I'm going to, I have a list of animals with unique jobs and I want to hear your takes on them. <laughs> okay. Matt, feel free to give your comments as well. So the first one is U.S. Navy combat dolphins carry out military tasks. So as part of the Navy Marine Mammal Program, the U.S. military has trained a number of bottlenose dolphins in various combat and military roles. The Space and Naval Welfare Systems in San Diego have trained 85 dolphins so far at a cost of $14 million per year. They were even used to guard an ammunition pier during the Vietnam War. <laughs> Fourteen million dollars. <laughs> I think I'm. I think I personally am gonna like come at it from like a a tier list kind of format. I'm gonna go S S plus A B C D and F. This one's feeling like a B for me. You know, like pretty funny, but not world rocking. You know, like not something where I would. I gasp at the money, kind of like Elliot did, but nothing aside from that. And everything else, I'm like, this checks, you know, like the American military. Yeah, this kind of checks for them. This, this <laughs> is <laughs> zero surprise on my face, as you can see. So, like, in that regard, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm going to agree with Matt's assessment. Be here. <laughs> All right. I like it. I like it. I like being agreed. I, I just, this, I don't know. I just think it's a wild story. Uh, here's the next one. A king penguin is an honorary member of Norway's Royal Guard. S plus. So, yes, he should be. <laughs> so Sir <laughs> Nils Olaf is a king penguin that lives at the Edinburgh Zoo. And he's best known for his association with Norway and is an honorary member of their country Royals Guard. To be he was, fair. He was, he, he was knighted in 2008 and was given a promotion in 2016. He's on his way to being king. This is, see, this the is. honorary officer is now a brigadier. This is, he probably makes more money than me, and I'm yeah. not even mad. <laughs> yeah, no, and here's the thing, too, right? It's a classic example of naming your kid the personality or job you want them to have, yeah. right? Yeah. I've worked with kids named, like, Badger before. Guess what? They act like they'd be named Badger. They're <laughs> They're, yes, yes. You name your kid what you want them to be. King Penguin, well on his way. S+, plus. proud of him. He's doing great. Uh, the next one is dogs serve as mayors of a U.S. town. The small town of Rabbit Hash, Kentucky, only has 315 residents, and it wouldn't be known unless they had a string of dogs as their mayor since 1998. 
I was... uh, their most famous incumbent for the official position was perhaps Junior Cochran, the black Labrador that served as the mayor of the town from 2004 until his death in 2008 at the age of 15. Wait, so he came into office when he was 11? Yeah. That's older than wow. Biden. I know. It's <laughs> a very old dog. I was um, at D until he said it's been going since 1990. of Rabbit Hash, Kentucky is a pit bull named Brenneth Paltro. <laughs> do they have elections? Yeah. Yeah, like, they do. Do people like, oh. sign up their dogs? I oh, think so, because there's two backup ambassadors in the form of a Border Collie and an Aussie Shepherd. I was at, I started at F, and it's climbed every <laughs> single detail you've given me. Like, yeah. Rabbit Hash took it to D. And then 1990 took it to C, and now I'm at a B because Brenneth Paltrow. <laughs> Bre no, no, Brenneth Paltrow, like Paw. Oh, I, I, it might I, bring I, it back I, down to a C. <laughs> ready for the next one? Yeah. So a baboon ran a railway signal station. A South African signalman, James Wilde, had a terrible accident in the late 1800s, and he fell onto the track in front of an oncoming train, losing both of his legs. After the incident. A Chakma baboon named Jack was trained to help him continue his duties. The baboon aided him in pushing the homemade wheelchair and operating the signal switches for the railway. Jack was paid 12 cents a day and given half a bottle of beer every week. <gasps> Wait! Come Wait, on! They gave the baboon beer. Did I hear that right? You did, yes. B, only because I think drunk baboon running railway is an awful <laughs> idea. <laughs> As someone who does, like, primate work, I feel like this is... Yeah, I, I also work wrong. with primates. I don't. I wouldn't trust that baboon. No, I don't. No. no. They're, morally they're wrong, too... not for the baboon, for the people involved. <laughs> All right, we got, we got three more. We got three more. We got three more. Bees detect explosives in airports. So you've probably seen sniffer dogs at the airports also doing their jobs. Um, but several facilities are now teaching bees to help find potential bombs. So researchers in the U.S. have discovered that the insects have a strong sense of smell like dogs and can be trained to do the exact same thing. The techniques involve having the bees associate the smell of certain materials and chemicals used in bombs with sugar and water, causing the bees to believe that nectar is close. See, because the optics of like going through an airport and all of a sudden like a swarm of bees flying by you because there's a bomb is just really, really like the start of a horror film. Yeah, or like it's a, definitely like a big horror movie vibe, but I think it's like honeybees. All right, our, our second to last one is ferrets can double as electricians. So ferrets are known for their lightning speed and flexibility, which allows them to travel quickly through tunnels and navigate hard-to-reach areas. Those skills mean they've often been employed to lay electrical cables in places where engineers are unable to get. Up until the 1960s, Boeing had their own team of ferrets to carry cables around <laughs> aircrafts that they were building. The animals have even used for concerts, like in 1999, when a collection of them were used to solve cabling problems at a gig in the UK. They used to use ferrets as pipe cleaners. They would release <laughs> the ferrets into the pipes, and then they would clean them. But then the problem was the ferrets didn't want to come out of the pipes. So then they just had a bunch of dead ferrets in pipes, and then they were more dirty. <laughs> S plus, because my father is an electrician, and his nickname is Weasel. I don't know why oh, wow. it's so roundabout. Oh, wow. It all came together. That's very, very funny. And our last one is a cat is the chief mouser to the UK's cabinet office. Uh, Larry the cat has become something of a celebrity since 2011 after being rescued from a shelter. He was brought to 11 Downing Street. 
the official residence of the British Prime Minister, in order to help in with an infestation of mice and rats. According to the official government website, the cat spends his days greeting guests, inspecting security defenses, and testing antique furniture for napping quality. He spends his day-to-day -day responsibilities also contemplating a solution to the mouse occupancy of the house. Larry is far from the first cat to take up residence at Downing Street. Many previous prime ministers own cats, both for pets and as rat hunters. However, Larry differs as he's considered a member of the civil service and therefore not the personal property of the prime minister. He stays at the location regardless of who's in the office. F because Brexit. What do you think, Elliot? I think F because that's just what cats do. Yeah. It yeah. Really it's like not that interesting of a job compared that's... to the freaking freaking penguin who's in the royal guard. What does he royally guard? <laughs> oh, no. And it just reminded me of the Chicago cats. And yeah, I don't like I was... the Chicago cats. Yeah. yeah. That was a current event from a few weeks ago. Yeah. We'll link it in the blog post for this week. Most so importantly, bringing up bad memories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trauma. Trauma response. <laughs> All right. I do have one more. Okay, good. Because I can't end on Brexit. No. All right. My last one is sheep help prune vineyards for high quality wine. Oh. So many vineyards use pesticides to help control pests and weeds that might threaten crops. However, a recent consumer trend shows that customers are increasingly seeking organic and chemical free products. So winemakers have started looking for more natural maintenance solutions. Taking inspiration from New Zealand farmers, a Canadian vineyard owner started using lambs to prune the leaves from the vine so the fruit could grow better. The size of the young sheep means they can't reach the grapes and they aren't heavy enough to trample the soil, while their droppings provide excellent fertilizer. So they're wine-making sheeps. I like them. I think this is like a middling tier. Mm -hmm. I was thinking S because wine. Yeah, but you put the baboon lower because of beer. No, but here's the thing: the baboon was drinking. The beer. <laughs> the was this drinking is huge difference. People are making it. This was a drunk baboon controlling a railway, not sheep giving me wine. Like, <laughs> if the baboon gave me the beer, S plus. Come on, he's a bro. <laughs> the baboon isn't sharing his beer. The sheep are. They're sharing their wine. Mm -hmm. And they're sober while they do it, and I appreciate that. Yeah, plus, I don't. I, I wouldn't trust a drunk railway. Controller, let alone a drunk monkey <laughs> railway controller. So these are just some fun animals with jobs, but obviously the kind of focal point of today's episode was to talk about, you know, some more serious things in terms of inclusion and accessibility with service animals and ESAs. So Elliot, before we kind of wrap up, is there anything you want to say to the listeners? Yeah, thanks for listening. Just remember that service dogs are doing important jobs and yeah, they're working hard for their people. Um, if you want to hear more from me, my Instagram is taco underscore bellyit. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks so much for being here, Elliot. Let's cut back to the rest of the episode. I like the tier list. That was fun. Mm -hmm. I think tier lists would actually be a fun thing to do with guests going in the future. So thank you so much, Elliot, for being on the podcast. We're really happy to have you here. Mm -hmm. um, Always glad to have our good friend and writing and production assistant Elliot on whenever he wants. So Elliot, mm -hmm. just let us know when you want to come back on. He'll uh, absolutely like he, be on probably soon. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Like he mentioned uh, in the interview, uh, you can find him on Instagram at taco underscore Belliot. Uh, that's T-A-C-O underscore B-E-L-L-I-O-T. So go follow our good friend Elliot. 
on the topic of the social meds. You, where can you find us on social meds, Matt Balaga? M A T T V is in Victor A L I G A on the gram. That's right. That's Matt Valiga. I'm your friendly neighborhood Mothman. It's a whole entire thing. We're having a good time though. I'll be bowling out there. Just recently went to vacation. So freak yeah. And by yes. that I mean just left for vacation. Now I think about it. So keep your eyes out, folks. <laughs> it's gonna be a doozy. It's gonna be a doozy. It is. Uh, you can find me on Instagram as well at cj.greco. That's cj.greco. And I'll probably be posting something for my birthday. Who knows? Maybe I'll post something when I went to Douglas 19. Happy nope, birthday. I'm excited regardless. So check out my gram. You I'm can find all of us collectively at the Birdie Bunch podcast. Like I mentioned earlier in the episode, we'll be going to have a new co-host next week. So go to our social media to see who it is. You'll obviously meet them next week on the podcast, which is so, so exciting. Mm-hmm. In addition to our social media, you can uh, visit our Patreon. If you visit our website, thebirdiewenchpodcast.com, you can visit our Patreon. We have a lot of really cool options for you to support us. And you'll even get a shout-out here in the podcast and some other perks as well. Another thing that I mentioned near the top of the podcast was our merch store. So you can, again, go to our website, thebirdiewenchpodcast.com, visit our merch store. We have a really cool fundraiser going on for the Monty mm-hmm. and Rose film documentaries to provide Please. closed captioning. Please donate. I would love it. Just I please. Thought were, I think you're saying something was wrong with my audio. No, please yeah, donate. Please donate. We, we, it's, it's literally the money isn't going towards Matt and CJ. The money is going no. towards like a wildlife documentary, providing accessibility for it, which is something we are all about. Please donate. It's a really, really awesome cause. We're gonna keep that going as long as we can. The documentary is gonna be literally found on TV. Like this is actually like a thing, like thing, thing. Like we're doing some cool stuff. So go and check that out. Well, with all of that being said, uh, before we kind of wrap up our episode for today, go and leave us a review. If you leave a five-star review on the podcast, we'll read it out on air. So go and leave a review if you really enjoyed what you heard today. Also, just share this podcast with a friend. We love new listeners, and we love you nature lovers. So go get us some new nature lovers. We Mm -hmm. would love that. And we love nature. Mm -hmm. Sure. (laughs) That's good. Let's get out of it. Let's get out of it, Matt said. Let's all that being said, nature lovers, have a good week. We will see you next time and we will catch you next time. (laughs) Let's get out of it. (laughs) Oh, that hurt. Thank you for sharing your day with us and listening to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would specifically like to thank Sarah Dunlap for creating our logos, Elliot High for being our writing and production assistant, and Connor Whitman for being our music producer. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination. I really enjoy that ending. Can it like end with, oh, that hurt? Yeah, it's going to. Oh, good.